Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. (laughs) That's right. That's good enough. (laughs) Oh boy. Let's dive in. Our next guest is an opportunity seeker. It started from a very young age, and she has a relationship with her daddy, like I have with mine. Jana, welcome. Well, uh, I feel like I know you somehow. This is, this is unfair because you have put yourself out there and I've listened to your podcast, and you don't know anything about me. So, ha, joke's on you. <laughs> oh my God, you're fun to play along. <laughs> totally. You are a heart transplant survivor, which I've never known somebody to go through that. I would love you to talk to me about that. Oh, that old thing. Yes. <laughs> the whole thing started back in 2009 and it was during the swine flu time and I got the flu and at first it was just like upper respiratory thing and I just wasn't feeling well. And over the course of three weeks, I went from being completely normal, totally normal 27 year old to feeling progressively worse. Went to the doctor three times over that three weeks. And they said, yeah, we know you're not feeling well, but everything seems fine. And then by the third week, I was to the point where I was sweating and my heart was racing. And that last day, I was pushing myself so hard thinking, well, I mean, they say I'm okay. And I remember driving across the bridge here in Seattle to the other side of the lake. And I lost vision in one eye, like just went blind and I could barely breathe. But I thought, well, I have one more meeting. I'll just go to this one more client meeting. (laughs) And I did. And then I went to the hospital and they said, oh yeah, your heart's only working at 10% function. So yeah, I was in severe heart failure. The flu had attacked my heart and had killed off a huge portion, basically had done what a massive heart attack would do to a totally normal heart. It changed everything. It was just a game changer. My husband, Nick, and I had been married for six months when it happened. The old in sickness and in health, part of the vows kicking in. I immediately had to stop working. That was incredibly hard. For a year, I just had to figure out how to live. I had to figure out, I was going to cardiac rehabilitation, which is basically exercise with old people. About a year later, I got to the point where I was well enough to either go back to work part-time or go to school part-time. Like I could decide what I wanted to do. And I thought, you know, hey man, clearly you only got one shot at this thing. (laughs) You only have one chance to live this life. I think that I don't want to keep going on the same path I was always going on. And so I decided to actually change my career entirely. My husband encouraged me. He's like, hey, you love business. Why don't you go to business school? And I said, well, you're insane. Because at that point, I had improved to 24% heart function. Still not great. But I thought, you know what? What's there to lose? I just try, right? I'm just going to give it a shot. And so I started University of Washington Business School program at night. And that was a three-year program. And I went. And it was incredibly hard and incredibly fun. And it gave me a sense of purpose. You know, I think there's so many people out there who are sick or disabled or on a path that isn't what they expected. And the thing you need is hope. The thing you need is a vision of something that could be better in the future. 
And that's what I had. And that's what I got to build over time. I had big plans. I was just bound and determined that I was, I was going to create a life that I could live after school. I decided to go pursue technology. I loved how fast tech moved because even with 25% of my heart, I still had a lot of energy to make business move fast. And I knew tech could do that. I got my entrepreneurship certificate in tech. And then I spent a lot of time basically building my own internship because I figured, well, I've got to practice. I've got to practice working and seeing if my body can handle it. I would call up companies or go through the school and say, hey, you want an intern for two hours a week? And you know, you don't have to pay me, but I want to work for you. And everybody says, yes, I want a free person for two hours a week. <laughs> and I would go do something for them. I did business development. I did market research. I would make business plan after business plan. But what it did was it let me prove to myself I can work for two hours at a time. I can work for four hours at a time. I can do these chunks. And it let me prove to myself that my body was strong enough over time. By the time I graduated, I was cleared by my doctor to go back to work full time. That was pretty amazing. That was in 2014. I went to work for an amazing tech company here in Seattle. And then as luck would have it, in 2016, I did take a dive. My health took a dive. I had to get listed for a heart transplant. I was actually on the waiting list with basically a heart pump that was powered by batteries. So I carried around a big, huge set of batteries and the wire went into my chest to keep this pump going. And I carried that around at work. I worked while I was on that thing <laughs> for 10 months and I ended up getting a heart, a heart transplant. Uh, and my anniversary, my four year heart anniversary is August 18th, 2016. So I'm coming up on it. It's pretty exciting. <laughs> Do you celebrate that? Oh yeah, my heart anniversary. <laughs> oh yeah, we always do. And it varies because, you know, you think about it though, that that day or probably a few days before is the day that someone lost their family member. I don't know a lot of details about my donor. Um, I've written to the family and they haven't written back, which is common. And, you know, it was just such a tragedy. It's common, but I do know it was a young man that their life completely changed destroyed in a lot of ways. I'm just incredibly grateful that they had the generosity and the kindness to make a choice like that in their worst moment, or even just to respect their family member's choice who, who decided to. And the thing is, you don't get on the heart transplant list if you're just kind of sick. I wouldn't be here today. I didn't have more than six months to live for sure. It was do or die. You know, the heart transplant, the anniversary is special. I'll say that it is a very, it's a time of reflection. And I think back now and I think the families, they're thinking, wow, almost four years ago is when we lost him. And that is a really, um, it's a reflective time, but you know what? I cannot be anything but grateful. Like four years, four years, I've gotten to spend with my family and I've gotten to venture with my husband, Nick, and I've gotten to do my favorite thing, which is work. <laughs> I've gotten to do all this, these amazing things. And like, I've gotten to spend time with my family and go on vacations and just get to be with the people I love and do the things I love. There's nothing there besides gratitude. You told me that your dad is a hoot. Can you go into that a little bit? My dad is Todd Farrell and he is from Texas. Well, he's actually from Oklahoma and that is a big deal whenever you're from Texas or Oklahoma, that matters. 
So I was born in Texas. And so that's a Texan would think that's a leg up on an Okie. I never thought he had an accent. And then my husband just started like crying with laughter. And he's like, he has a ridiculous accent. So I guess you'll have to tell us. He is a ridiculous storyteller. And he tells those kind of stories that you think, oh, he's just like telling you something that happened. And then 30 minutes later, you realize, oh, I've been had. It's the best. And he's the kind of person that he is a one-man social committee. I mean, I love him for a million reasons, but one of the reasons is he wants to make sure that every single person feels seen and that they were acknowledged and that somebody cared about them. Mr. Crying. <laughs> he just knows what it's like to feel like ignored and he doesn't want anyone to ever feel that way. But he's like the star of the show. Everybody just, he has a crowd around him. Oh, Todd, hi, Todd. He loves name tags. He thinks everybody should have a name tag in the entire world. I firmly agree with him. He wears a name tag, even if no one else does, because he wants people to be like, hey, Todd, how you doing? He'll try to remember your name. And if he doesn't remember your name, he will ask. He's just over it. He's like, all right, I don't remember your name. Tell me again. Because he knows that saying someone's name makes them feel special. And so we just do this. We ask people's name. I have a picture of him. He's at church again one day and he has a piece of masking tape with his name written on it. He's like, I didn't have any name tags. I just wrote my name on tape. <laughs> He's a blast. He has a used car lot in Oklahoma. He has been a jack of all trades, but for the last 30 years, he has had a used car business. I mean, he's who I get my love of business and industry from. Wow. There's a lot of similarity there. Actually, my dad goes to auctions too, and he has flipped cars so that he will, my dad will love that conversation. And my dad loves to make a deal and he loves to reinvent himself. And, oh. and to him, it's totally a game. And my grandfather was the same way. You think we can make a deal? <laughs> yeah, yes, absolutely. And why shouldn't you? This is great. It's fun. And it's just like, it's a hobby. And then like it lights you up and your eyes start sparkling. And <laughs> one of his favorite things to do is to get on the website where you buy cars all over the country and you can have them shipped to you. And so, you know, we'll get on there. They live in Oklahoma, so I don't get to go see them that often, but we do. We'll stay up late looking at all the cars all around the country. And we're like, okay, so this one's only got 35,000 miles, but look at that damage on the rear, you know, the rear quarter panel. It's too much. Yeah, I agree. Too much, too much damage. I don't know, but it's fun to <laughs> I go after it. If you show enthusiasm and passion for what you're doing, you can just reel people in and people are drawn to that. I am a career coach on the side. And whenever I talking to potential clients, I'm always looking for the sparkle in their eye. It's just this thing where it's connecting the dots. It's just a constant looking for opportunities or looking for the next step. It's not just a receiving of information. Okay. It's just a reciprocity. It just comes from being totally engaged. That's what it is. Being totally immersed and engaged in a subject. That is my favorite thing. Where does your hope come from? My hope comes from the fact that I believe everybody has an almost unlimited source of potential in them. You know that piece of science, it might even be like pop science that says we use like a millionth of our brain or whatever that is. I feel like that's the case with our potential. We just scratch the surface, just a tiny little scratch. And if we can start 
believing in our own potential and start removing the limiting beliefs that pop in our head all the time. If we start addressing them one by one, we can start unlocking some of that potential and we can start digging away at that potential a little bit more. Each of us are such an amazing creation of unique experiences and our characteristics, our personality, our background, our experience at work, who we've been taught by, our mentors, all of these things. And when you add that together, when you add that amalgamation, that beautiful mix together, there's no one else on the planet like you. People talk about this special snowflake like it's a bad thing. Like, that's a cool thing. You are a unique item. And if you can find something where that could be an advantage to you, watch out world. I find that there's a lot of potential for myself and for the people I know and love. And so there's just a ton of hope for me there. I love that. I mean, that's a big reason why I decided to do this show is because I've been an entrepreneur for about two and a half years and every difficult conversation that I've had to have, I call my dad and he ran a company for 40 years and he gives the best perspective. So I was like, you know what? I was like, all these people are coming to me now for coaching. I should share my dad's wisdom. I feel like he has an interesting one or two things to add to every conversation. He totally does. I love the tail end of your shows. I'm like, oh, more Wayne, more Wayne. <laughs> and I have to say, I love it when you talk too. So I'm like, more Rena, more Rena. <laughs> oh, you're so sweet. I want to hear about your dad's Chuck E. Cheese experience. My dad went to Chuck E. Cheese University. I think I was like one or two, probably two. And we were living in Central Texas at the time. He went away to Chuck E. Cheese University, which was in, I think he said it was in San Jose, California. And I don't know how long he went, but the stories he tells about it. So you have McDonald's or Hamburger University for McDonald's, right? And Hamburger University has a pretty high bar. Like it's the Yale of fast food kind of universities, right? Chuck E. Cheese U. I think would be like the Dallas Community College of, <laughs> of these schools. Like it was not the same caliber. But Dad said he was the number two student of the class for sure. He wasn't the teacher's pet, but he was doing okay. And he was pretty proud of that. He's pretty happy with being number two. Basically, they learned how to make pizza. And they learned how to like manage the cashier thing. Basically, learned how to be a manager. It was not the stellar experience that Hamburger University was. Turns out. But he got to meet some fun people. Back then, I would say until I was about 12, dad kind of went back and forth between working for someone else and working for himself. But then I think he just can't work for the man. I relate to some degree. I feel like I have ideas too, and I think things should be a certain way. And sometimes people say, hey, do your job. <laughs> It was interesting because after I grew up, I really did want to have a super solid nine to five. I wanted like health insurance and I wanted a retirement and I wanted all those things and I ended up getting them and had a really successful career, but that entrepreneurial drive is still there and I can't not scratch it. So, but now this is the age of the side hustle. So <laughs> it's okay to be multi-passionate. I find that multiple uses for my energy give me a lot of energy for the other thing. They build on each other. When I'm working in my coaching work, it gives me lots of energy for my work with my team in my corporate job and then vice versa. 
Oh, I totally relate to that. And I also have gone back and forth between working for someone else and working for myself and trying that again. And I think it's okay to go back and forth. And I also have a lot of varied interests. I like variety. There's so many cool things out there. And I think whenever you have that sparkle in your eye and things can catch your eye, you want to go explore them. And also you see possibility. You see opportunity and go, there's something cool to be done there. There's money to be made. There's something to pursue. And you want to strike while the iron's hot. I think it's a good thing. We're doing fine, Rena. We're doing fine. <laughs> Did your dad ever put on the Chuck E. Cheese suit? I remember being in the ball pit. Remember the balls? I remember being in the balls and I remember falling down and being like, oh, I'm stuck, I'm stuck. And I couldn't, I couldn't even see. I just remember there being balls over my head and this little girl reaching down and grabbing my hand and pulling me up. And I remember, thank you, thank you. She's like my little savior as she pulled me out of the balls. That's all I remember. The balls can be dangerous. They could be just as dangerous as like a wave pool. I know. Well, I was like two so, or three or something, so... It's, the balls were intense. There's a whole lot of balls. <laughs> that was a bunch. <laughs> I love Chuck E. Cheese, though, as a kid, and Mr. Gaddy's, and oh the pizza, God. and the rides, and the ball pit, and chasing this, down Chucky and doing the dances. The ski ball. I like the ski ball. <laughs> that was a good one. I never liked arcade games. I was never good at them, but ski ball was good. I like the whack, the whack-a-mole one, where you'd whack the little guy on the... Yeah, I like that. <laughs> What were you doing pre-business school? Right out of college, I said I was looking for that stability. I want to make money. <laughs> so I thought, well, how do you make money? You sell stuff, okay? What do you sell that would make a lot of money? And I think, well, something big like a CAT scan machine. I don't know. I, just made, I, picked, I was 18 or 21. I didn't know what I was talking about. So I was looking at like Googling or whatever in the, in the um, career office at school. I saw this thing for United Healthcare and I thought, oh, well, that sounds like a big company that would sell CAT scan machines. No, turns out they sold health insurance. <laughs> I didn't know that. I applied and I was accepted into what they call group school, which is their new graduate training program. It was amazing. So there were 16 of us scattered around the country and we'd spend three weeks out of a month in our home office shadowing our top sales rep and our top account manager. And then one week out of the month, I would go to the home office in Minnesota and we would learn business presentation skills, what to do at a, at a business dinner, how to give a, a presentation to executives, all sorts of stuff. This was a six month program. It was phenomenal. And at the end, they said, okay, you're done. Do you want to be a sales rep or an account manager? And I thought about it and I had gotten second, ah, oh, that second place in terms of overall scores, but I had placed first in the sales competition and I really liked it, but I picked account management because I was scared of the sales job. I regret that. Learned my lesson and now I don't make choices out of fear anymore. I so ended up taking a path through account management in the health insurance industry. So for six or seven years, what I learned from that is I didn't like health insurance, learned that, but I learned that I loved my customers and I love learning about their businesses. And that's really what led me ultimately to business school was just realizing that I loved their businesses. Okay. So that's really interesting because I also am helping people a little bit with career coaching now, just because they've been coming to me in my DMS and, you know, I might get a lady who has worked in the financial industry for 20 years and now 
due to COVID, she's thinking about organizing homes. Can you talk to me about some of the career transitions that you've seen? I've seen a lot. It's interesting. Career transitions are an interesting one because so many people want to do that. So many people want to make a move and people can feel really trapped. They get into a role a lot of times right out of college. It's just not, it's not what they're looking for. So what I suggest is a wholesale career change is hard to do. I think you can do it, but it requires, probably requires some education or going back and doing some sort of like a mentorship, something like that. Like it's, it's not that easy. It's a lot about crafting your narrative and your resume. How do I make my experience look and sound like someone would care about? How did you get your coaching clients? A lot of it came from word of mouth. I've been involved in Lean In for years. Cheryl Sandberg, COO at Facebook, wrote Lean In in 2013, and it came at a really pivotal time for me. I was in the middle of business school, and I had already been really involved in, I would call it women's professional development. So realizing that women in tech were facing a different kind of experience than guys, where we were not only, there were fewer women in tech, but we were experiencing kind of like a mental, there were some mental blocks that we were having by it in our own. So I was thinking about that a lot. And then Lean In came along and at the end of the book, Cheryl, she says, if you want to continue this conversation, start a Lean In circle. Yes, please. I shall do that. And so it's just a group of eight or 10 women who get together once a month and talk about career development and professional development. But really the concept that I love is you talk about your highs and lows the top 5% of things that are going on in your life, like your career. So the things that you can't tell anyone else, I just got a raise for $15,000. You're not going to tell that to your pals. It's just a little bit like brazen, but I would still say tell people, but whatever. But you're also not going to tell people, I got fired today. Like that's the kind of thing you tell in your circle. And it was so successful. We expanded to two and three and four. There were 80 by the time I kind of stopped being super active in that. Now the Lean In chapter in Seattle has 3,000 members. It's, it's amazing. I'm on the legacy board now, but it's it's huge. It's amazing. Jana, that is so incredible. Cool. It's so cool. I love it. I love, I love the concept because it is about women supporting women and building each other up and realizing that no matter how brilliant and high achieving and powerful women are, sometimes there are just these times where you just doubt yourself and have a little self-doubt and you need your support system to push you up that hill when you just can't quite believe in yourself. The beauty is that tomorrow you're going to go do that for someone else. It works every single time. I've seen people double their salary in like a year. No joke. I've seen people change careers, change jobs, get out of industries that were terrible for them. And honestly, just build this confidence, this sense of confidence. From that, I found my voice there. I realized that I have a talent for helping people guide through their career journey. And so I would end up leaving the circles pretty much all the time. I had such a joy for it. People love the one-on-one -on -one conversation. So I started booking clients just for myself. I also do group coaching where I lead. So it's not so much a peer-led thing. I lead it. I have 15 years experience in startups and corporate now. I have a lot to share. I love to do it. I have read Lean In. I actually loved the book. But one question I have is now that her husband isn't there to support her, how much is she truly able to lean in now? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So Cheryl has made no bones about the fact that she is privileged beyond. And she is. She has help left, right, and center. She has nannies, like multiple nannies. She has family. I think that that's something that people had trouble with from the beginning. Also, she's white. She is Harvard educated. And there's all of these things that were stacked in her favor. She interned for the Secretary of the Treasury, I think. (laughs) So, you know, all of these things. But what's funny is, I go to our lean-in chapter meetings. People there are of all different backgrounds. And I would say that's also a testament to the diversity and inclusion work that chapter has done because it used to be more 26-year-old white girl look, and now it's changing, both in terms of age diversity, race. There's all sorts of really working to change that. But I think that all of this ties back to that story of how much can people lean in. I think that you have to acknowledge that people cannot lean in all the time. No way. Don't even think about it. This is COVID. There is a pandemic going on. To think that everybody needs to hold to some sort of standard, anytime there's any sort of judgment of you need to stop, that is the wrong answer. To me, it is a mental exercise that I go through whenever I find myself really wanting to do something. I have a a voice in my head saying, I don't think you should do that. That seems like it's going to be really tough. That is me holding myself back. The exercise would be me talking that through and going, hey, I'm going to question that voice. I'm not going to let that be the answer all the time. I'm going to question it. And that's the exercise of leaning into me. Did you feel that way after the surgery? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that my illness has taught me a wild amount about resilience and about self-talk and defining what I can and can't do and making up my own rules for that. The doctors have told me many times that my attitude has made a tremendous impact on my outcomes. I've had a very smooth post-transplant. I believe that I'm going to have a good outcome. I believe that I am going to be healthy and that I'm going to have a good life and that this is not the end of the road for me. And you can choose to dwell on the negative or you can just say, hey man, not my problem. I'm plowing forward. Can you tell me some of the rules that you have to follow now that you've had a heart transplant? At this point, four years out, the main thing I have to do is I have to take anti-rejection medicines twice a day for the rest of my life. No missing. If I do, I will go into rejection, which is where my body will see my heart as a foreign object and will try to kill it. It's incredibly dangerous. So that's the thing that transplant patients are constantly warring against. The crazy thing is these anti-rejection meds are incredibly intense. They're basically shutting down my immune system. They hurt your kidneys. They hurt your liver. They hurt your eyesight. They hurt all your other organs. A lot of people after 10, 10 years or 15 years end up needing a kidney transplant. They say that with a heart transplant, you're trading a terminal disease for a chronic disease. Right now, I feel great. I'm fine. But life is precious. And the time is precious. Have you met anyone else who's had a heart transplant? 
yeah, we find each other. <laughs> and now with the internet, you have Facebook groups and stuff like that. I'm in several groups. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, I've had friends that haven't made it, that have died. It's hard because you get to know these people and they feel just like your regular friends. And then you realize that they're much more fragile. We are much more fragile. It's a, a harsh reality. But also you remember, we're all here on borrowed time. We're glad and grateful to even be here at all. How did your husband six months into your marriage handle that? People want to nominate him for sainthood. <laughs> he has a big fan club. His name is Nick and he is the best. It was incredibly hard. I remember right after transplant, he came in. I'd been awake for a little bit and he said, okay, hey babe, do you mind if I go home? I was like, of course. Because we'd gotten the call and then with everything that happened, I didn't get surgery for almost two days. Surgery took almost 14 hours, something like that. He stayed up the whole time. He had not slept in almost three days. He came back. He looked like a different person. His shoulders were light. He was like bouncing in. I was like, are you okay? Are you, how are you doing? He's like, I feel great. I went home, threw up, and then went straight to bed. <laughs> and he's like, I can rest. I can relax. For the first time in 10 years, I can relax. You know, he was just living in a constant state of moderate fear, moderate to extreme fear for 10 years. He's human and he would get mad. He would get frustrated. He would get exhausted. I got sick in 2009. He got laid off from his banking job in 2009. It was a beast. Like it was rough times and we got through it. I think we both grew a ton and we're super grateful for each other. And sometimes we just, we can't even comprehend how crazy it was. What are you guys watching on Netflix? We just finished, or we're about to finish Perry Mason on HBO. It's real good. <laughs> how did you and Nick meet? We met on Match.com, the 2004 or five version of Tinder. I saw his profile and he said his favorite color was clear. And I thought that was funny. <laughs> so and he thought I was cute. So we met, but we did like to tell people for a long time that we met like these crazy scenarios where I was a barrel racer and he was a rodeo clown, or we met skydiving and he was the pilot or something like that. But no, that's shot call. <laughs> Although he was too cheap to pay for a subscription. So he just had in his profile, his free profile. He's like, hit me up at Nick, A space, 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 T, whatever. And I should have known. No, he's not a cheapskate. <laughs> But he doesn't like paying for subscriptions. <laughs> That's really funny because I met my husband online and I was not a paid member and we were on at the same time so he could message me. What service? It was J-Date. I have tons of friends who met on eHarmony or Plenty of Fish or all those. Actually, me and Nick both tried to get on eHarmony and it said that there was no one in the world matched with either of us. <laughs> We were both very offended. <laughs> Did you have any funny dates that you went on? Oh, I dated some guy for a few months. He was nice. And then he was a jerk after a little while. He would, he would, um, like he'd be walking around and be like, oh, look at her. Isn't she cute? And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> he was bizarre. Is it better to date through people you know? What are your thoughts I on that? Yeah, I don't know. I do have friends that are given a second shot, coming in for a second round of love. They are going the Tinder route or whatever it is, and they're having some success. They're meeting people, but they are probably meeting people who are there after divorce and stuff. But I don't know. I mean, can you meet people just through referrals anymore? I don't know. Probably, but it does seem a little, I don't know. 
1998. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was so much fun. And please let people know how they can connect with you all over. Yeah, absolutely. I am Jana Morelli on social. So it's J-A-N-A-M-O-R-R-E-L-L-I. So two R's and two L's. That's the tricky part. My website's janamorelli.co. Thank you so much, Rena. This was so fun. You're a light. I love the sparkle. I love the sparkle. You bring the sparkle. So it takes one to know one. <laughs> I cannot wait for my dad's response. Here we go. What she's done is help really coach people find their answer. And what she did was after having this heart transplant, she picked herself up, even if she was taking baby steps, one after the other after the other. It's almost like starting life all over again. But she was determined that getting another opportunity at life, that she would build it and try to grow with it and try to be as normal as possible. No, she tried to be exceptional and she wanted to have skills and levels of growth. And if she made up her mind, she felt like she could still do anything and to be able to even help motivate other people that they can do anything. That if you have a passion and if you have the time and effort to build up your skills, that you can accomplish anything. And that's what she's trying to not only do for herself, but she's trying to do it for others as well. And I'll tell you something, because she uh, talked a lot about her father, and her, her father is a scrappy fellow also, and he's also very personal, and she's very personal, and they're able to laugh at each other. They're able to not let some of the terrible things that can happen in this world, or working for other people, that is, as well, that you can be independent with the right skill level. But still that you have to get a lot of your experiences, both she did and her father did, by working for other people and seeing how business works. And they both have a lot of that in common. And the truth of the matter is, is that they have a lot of fun shooting different ideas off each other, almost a little bit like you and I as well. So I think that that's very good. And they both have a very good sense of humor. I think you have to go through life where you can not only laugh at yourself, but you can laugh at things. Sometimes laughing is better than crying and never giving up on hope. They both really enjoy and have a really good time with life and they live life to the fullest in their own way. Another and very important factor, as we've discussed on other shows, is that it's not all about the money, even though that's how sometimes we measure our success. But being good to people, being honest to people, by telling it like it is and being real, just like your show is, an attribute that is needed throughout this world if you're going to have a peaceful, growing world, is that we've got to be straight with each other, we've got to care for each other, and we have to be able to be honest with each other. And then let the chips fall where they may in business. Today's episode is sponsored by Rin 10 Media. If you want to look and sound your best for a podcast of your own, you want to get in touch with Ren 10 Media. When I first contacted them, Better Call Daddy was just a twinkle in my daddy's eye. And now, only after a couple months in, we're at like 50 episodes. Reach out to info at ren10media.co.za and use the subject line, Better Call Daddy.
Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Yeah. <laughs>